it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. We're very happy to have all of you aboard every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. And if you can't listen live, which we recommend, many ways to do so at GuyBensonShow.com. We do have a podcast. It is free. It is on demand every single day, the whole show. GuyBensonShow.com for all of that. Plus, on the podcast side, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor, host of this program, and here's who we've got on the show today. Dagan McDowell coming up later this hour. President Biden has announced his proposal to suspend the gas tax, a holiday of the gas tax, and he is getting ripped even by the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world, calling it a useless gimmick which, by the way, is what Barack Obama called it back in 2008. Some Democrats are already criticizing it. Joe Manchin has said he's not going to support it. Chuck Schumer isn't even committing to supporting it or putting it on the floor of the Senate. So that's gone over so far like a lead balloon. But Biden, in making this announcement, had a lot of blame to go around. I'll let you guess who he might have blamed. Ooh, the suspense is killing us. Could it be the same exact lame lines that aren't working that he's tried now for months? Yes. Spoiler alert, yes. So we will get Dagan's reaction to all of that. Last night, there were some interesting primaries and runoffs in the Deep South, in the D.C. area. Some crucial races now looking ahead to November. What happened last night? Josh Krasauer will be here to tell us exactly what he thinks those results mean. We will also catch up with Josh Holmes, longtime McConnell guy, now co-host of the hit podcast, Ruthless, looking forward to picking his brand on a whole host of subjects. One other programming note, I will be on assignment tomorrow in Florida. I will be visiting with Governor Ron DeSantis and a few other elected officials and political candidates. And I will have more on all of that To come, I just wanted to give you that preview about the back end of the week here on The Guy Benson Show. And since I mentioned Florida and Governor DeSantis, I want to play some sound for you from a uh, press conference that DeSantis gave where a reporter was asking a question about what the White House has been saying this week. And a lot of the media has amplified incorrectly. Here's the White House media story. They say that Florida is so anti-vax that they are not recommending COVID vaccines for healthy children under the age of five or six months to age five. That's true. That's not really an anti-vax position. That is very arguably a pro-data, pro-science position for reasons that were explicated very specifically and capably on this show this week 
by Dr. Marty McCary, an expert at Johns Hopkins. DeSantis and his team have that same view as Dr. McCary. I see that there are a few other, even left-leaning doctors, who have started a petition to get the CDC to change their recommendation on this and follow the example of a number of countries in Europe, including in Scandinavia, Sweden, and Finland. We've talked about this. But what the White House has said is, well, Florida is so fanatical about this, they were not allowing any doses of the vaccine to be ordered for kids in Florida. And then they say, under pressure, DeSantis changed his mind and reversed course. That story was told throughout the media. It was included in this big, unflattering, surprise, surprise, New Yorker profile of the Florida governor. And it also happens to be not true. And DeSantis explained exactly why it's not true to this reporter in a room filled with journalists, but also some supporters as well. I want you to listen to this, not just because I think it's important on the actual substantive issue itself. COVID vaccines for young children. As Dr. McCary said, the data does not support the recommendation, the very passionate, confident recommendation from CDC. The data doesn't support it. That's McCary and many other doctors are repeating that concern. DeSantis shares it. So I think on substance, as a matter of public health, it matters. I also think it is worth listening to a Republican politician who can push back not only against a false premise in an aggressive way, which I think a lot of Republican and conservative voters prize these days, but also has many layers of actual knowledge underneath that aggression to then go and explain things, I think, in a pretty comprehensive way. So you'll hear the beginning of the question, then DeSantis jumps in to correct the record, He spoke for nearly five minutes. I'm not going to play all of it for you, but I think it's important to walk through. I think it's worthwhile to walk through. So that's what we're going to do, starting with cut 30. Here we go. What do you make of the White House saying that the state reversed on child vaccines? So the White House is lying about it. We (laughs) surprised. Not surprised the White House would lie. Definitely not surprised that legacy media would amplify the lie because that's what they do. The state of Florida, they came out with an article saying the state of Florida has not ordered, its Department of Health has not ordered mRNA jabs for the babies. Yes, we didn't. We recommend against it. We are not going to have any programs where we're trying to jab six-month-old babies with mRNA. That's just the reality. So he gets a round of applause there. And he does do some battle with the mouthful of an acronym, MRNA, over the course of this answer. He eventually gets it. It's a tough one. But he says, okay, number one, it is true that we in the state of Florida have not ordered, through the government, we have not ordered these shots for these children because we're recommending against shots for healthy children. However... That's not where the answer ends. Like, he could stop with the round of applause. Like, it's not true. The White House claimed that we reversed. We didn't reverse, but we didn't order it because we're not recommending babies get COVID shots. And there's a round of applause. He could move on to next question. But he wanted to explain why 
the reversal line is not true, and also why the state of Florida is following the lead, and in some ways leading, but echoing the decision, paralleling the decision, if you will, of a lot of other governments in Western countries, in Europe, for instance. So he goes on digging deeper, cut 31. I think what happened was they thought somehow we would we would like be be embarrassed by that. No, we're following the data. You look at these European countries; uh, they are uh, a lot of them don't even allow Moderna for under age 30, or they recommend against it. So that was always that. We still have not ordered it. We're not going to order it now. What they're saying is because practitioners and hospitals can order it, somehow we've reversed. I I said from the beginning they'll be able to do that. We don't have the authority to prevent it. And quite frankly, if someone wants to make a different decision, I would just caution people, look at the actual data in the clinical trial. It is the weakest possible data that you could possibly uh, see. Very small number of people, uh, what the recommendation is from them doesn't even track the outcomes. It was something that, but but people can ask their pediatricians, they can ask their doctors, what's the evidence of, of, of protection against severe disease? There, there was none in the clinical trial. Uh, but, but that's something that people would do. But for us, Joe Latipo, our Department of Health has looked at it, there is no proven benefit to put a, a baby with an MRA. So that's why our recommendation is against it. We recommended against it because of the data. He said, look at some of the European countries that have done this. And then he said, just because we're not ordering it and providing it as the state government, that doesn't mean people can't get it. But we didn't reverse anything, he says. The whole plan all along was, we're going to look at the data, we're going to look at the science, we're going to make our decision. We can make a recommendation and act accordingly in the government, but practitioners, pediatricians, hospitals, providers, they are more than welcome to order stockpiles of these vaccines for little kids if they want to. And parents have the right to go get it if they want to. He said, quote, we don't have the authority to prevent it. And he also basically added, nor do we have the desire to do so. They can make a recommendation. They can decide what to do with their Department of Health based on public health interests rooted in the data. They can then make that public, tell people what they recommend. And what they can't do and what they're not trying to do and never wanted to do and never pretended that they were going to do is to say, well, these kid vaccines for COVID are now banned in the state of Florida. This is actually a problem that we have in our politics and the rhetoric surrounding our politics all the time. People seem to conflate this concept where if someone else is not providing something to you for free or paid for by someone else, that something is banned right we've had this debate on birth control for example oh just because the republicans didn't want nuns for example to have to pay for other people's birth control which is against the nuns religion that is tantamount to a birth control ban which is crazy they tried to make this a big issue in the 2012 campaign and Mitt Romney was like, birth control's fine, leave it alone. But that didn't stop them. The media banged on the drum and the Democrats did a big birth control convention at their 2012 convention. Republicans want to ban it because apparently if the government doesn't pay for something or force other people to pay for something, it's suddenly banned. 
in which case I would like to denounce the Biden administration's ban on Lamborghinis. Right, or Maseratis. Those Maseratis are hot. Whenever I see one out on the road or park somewhere, I'm like, that is a beautiful car. I can't afford to buy one. I'd like one. Joe Biden won't get one for me. The government won't pay to get one for me. They won't force my employer to buy me a Maserati. And therefore, I guess it's a ban. Right, it's so stupid. And yet, this is the way we debate politics a lot of the time. And DeSantis is saying... Just because we are not providing at the state level these vaccines for kids, which we think are a bad idea for young kids who are healthy, it does not mean that we are trying to then misuse our authority to say you can't get it anywhere, private entities can't order them, and families can't make these decisions. We don't have the authority. We're not going to do it. And he said people can talk to their pediatricians. Parents can talk to their doctors and make a decision. You want to go get your eight-month-old with a needle in her arm to get vaccinated in a vaccine of questionable efficacy against a virus that does not have overwhelmingly a negative, serious impact on young children? That's your call. That's up to parents. So then DeSantis delves in a little bit deeper. And what I like about this, again, is the substance. He knows things. One of my friends texted me the clips like, DeSantis is good at knowing things. To me, that is a plus. I like people who know things, who can engage in these rhetorical fisticuffs, but then can also sit down and rattle off a bunch of actual facts. I don't know if any journalist sitting there bothered to go and check any of the facts to find out that he's right and he's actually read the data and the materials and talked to a lot of experts. Maybe they have other things to do with their lives. Maybe they're busy. Maybe they're lazy. But I like at least the fact that he is willing to bring those facts to bear with specificity when he's asked a question like this, when there are allegations and inaccuracies being flung, as they so often are, at Florida, at his leadership, from the Democrats, from the media. So in Cut 32, we get more specific reasons. Listen. But I would say when you look at the trial, one of the things they did, they did not have uh, babies or very young kids who had recovered from COVID in the trial. So we don't know what this will do for people that have recovered. But in their recommendation, they are recommending giving the mRNA shot to people, young babies and kids that have already recovered from COVID. They don't have any clinical data on that. And people have looked at some of this stuff and have recognized how that, and you know what? The White House is bragging that we're the only country that is trying to do mRNA shots for infants. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with, with, with being, being the lone ranger if you're right. But the, com- the other countries in Europe that are going a different direction, similar to the direction Florida's gone, they have been right on COVID way more than Fauci and his crew have been throughout this whole thing. Very important point. He's like, hey, if you're the Lone Ranger doing your own thing, that's great if you're right. But is the evidence here that the Biden administration is actually correct? And the point that they didn't actually study kids with natural immunity, which is 70 to 80 percent of kids in this country at this point who've gotten and recovered from covid. They were not included in this tiny study, which was then rolled out to recommend all kids get shots healthy or otherwise, natural immunity or otherwise, that is a true fact. 
Dr. McCary mentioned that on this show. And DeSantis raised it, I think, correctly. He finished up by saying, again, we don't have the authority, we don't have the interest to ban this. It's not banned in Florida. We trust people to go make their own decisions. This is our recommendation. We didn't reverse anything. We were never going to do anything other than this once we announced our conclusions based on the data. I think it was an impressive, substantive performance, which is something that I like to see. And maybe I'll ask the governor about this if I get a chance to chat with him on air when I'm down in Florida tomorrow. By the way, one more note on Florida when we come back. An interesting indictment came down against a Florida politician. We'll tell you about that next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Just finishing up my thoughts on Florida. Did you see this? DeSantis back in 2018 shocked everyone, beat the polls and the expectations, really disappointed the media. They were all rooting for Andrew Gillum, the Democrat in that race, who was supposed to win based on the polling. They were excited about him because he was an SOC, a socialist of color, which is, I mean, the media, head over heels. Well, DeSantis won by about 30,000 votes, 0.4%. That was the margin. Can you imagine how different Florida might look today? if Gillum had won just a few more votes on COVID, on all sorts of stuff, the economy. And Gillum had some of those personal issues with the male escort and the drugs and that whole episode. Now there's this, quote, a federal grand jury has returned a 21-count indictment against Andrew Gillum, now age 42. Defendant charged with 19 counts of wire fraud. Gillum is also charged with making false statements to agents of the FBI. And this is related to that campaign, apparently. So a bunch of wire fraud and lying to the FBI, a 21-count indictment against Andrew Gillum, who is the big hope of the left and the media back in 2018. And he came within a whisker of being the governor of that state. Think about that alternative history. I think when you think about that, Florida voters should have a pretty easy decision to make this November, in my opinion. Dagan McDowell next on the economy. Biden audio, you got to hear it. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every day. Two Joshes to come on the show. Josh Crossauer, Josh Holmes, still ahead. Joining us now is Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network and a business correspondent on Fox News Channel. You see her every morning on Mornings with Maria. 
And Dagan, it's great to talk to you again, as always. My middle name is Josh. So how about <laughs> okay, that? perfect. Three Joshes it's a on the show. It's the Trinity. <laughs> perfect. No, I want to get hosting, your reaction. Um, I'm Go hosting ahead. the 5 p.m. on Fox Business later today. All week, oh, fantastic. So okay. Throwing that out there. So 5 p.m. hour on FBN. Dagan is holding down the fort. So a little programming note. Uh, you can set your DVRs or tune in live. Dagan, I want to start with this testimony earlier from Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, just basically saying, yeah, we're not really seeing inflation easing, any signs of that right now. Cut 41. What we're looking for is, you know, compelling evidence that inflation is coming down. And we, we don't have that. So nothing I could point to says that we have that. Not surprising, Dagan, but pretty blunt. Uh, Blunt, here's the problem, the biggest problem for the American people. The only way you kill inflation is with a gut punch to the American people, uh, a punch to the solar plexus from either the Federal Reserve through higher interest rates, through you know, lowering asset prices, or the federal government cutting spending – or both combined. The fact that Biden and company, I call it can kicking. That seems to be their, you know, their strategy. That they're doing nothing to lower inflation. It means the entire burden falls on the Federal Reserve, falls on the central bank, and. They use a blunt instrument. So the likelihood of a recession, if we're not already in one, goes up so much more because the Fed uh, attacks leverage assets, meaning you know, we live in a leveraged economy. You raise interest rates, and they will surely cause a calamity. Over the last 80 years, when the Fed tried to lower inflation to the level it's trying to take it right now, in every instance, we've had a recession. But I do think Jay Powell is uh, up to something. Joe Biden politically, he's an um, economic moron, but he's also a political moron because he should have fired Jay Powell. He could have blamed all this inflation on Trump's Federal Reserve chief. But Biden didn't do that. He kept him on board. Now he's got nobody to blame. And it looks like Jay Powell, when he was asked today on that very panel, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? Jay Powell said no. No. Inflation was high before, certainly before the war in Ukraine broke out. So Jay Powell is not sitting back and acting like his Fed Reserve, our central bank, is the sole reason that inflation is where it is. So he's kind of blaming the guy who kept him in the job. And that means well, Joe Biden. I found all saw- thing hilarious. The uh, Energy Secretary Granholm was at the briefing podium not long ago, and a reporter actually asked her about what Powell said on that front, because it's all Putin all the time with these people. He said, well, the chairman of the Fed just said it's not the lead driver, and but Biden says it is. And Granholm was like, well, I didn't see the comments, and she just completely avoided it. I noticed you tweeted earlier, Dagan, that the New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, is now using the word inevitable to describe a recession that's coming in the next 12 to 18 months. I know that a lot of experts are saying that probability is increasing and they're getting more and more worried. Talk about candor and bluntness. We've got the Fed president saying, yeah, a recession is now just absolutely coming in the next year, year and a half. 
that is tough to hear. Do you think he's right? Oh, he's absolutely right. Uh, I don't understand, and I I don't ever mean to sound giddy when I talk about higher interest rates, uh, the, the what the Federal Reserve is doing, an imminent recession, um, the the pain and punishment of inflation. But how can and see, I always trust like the like all the people I grew up with. I trust the American people. I don't believe in the deplorables and the rubes and the hayseeds and the hicks and the rednecks. Those people know better than the people in Washington to me. They can see this. So you look at the Federal Reserve. They had unprecedented stimulus during the COVID pandemic. They blew out the balance sheet. The balance sheet is $9 trillion. Before the financial crisis in 2008, it was $800 billion. So you've increased the balance sheet by more than $8 trillion in that period of time. They never really shrank it. All of that is is money printing. They printed money. That is money sloshing around the world, in part creating inflation. You throw in and the trillions of dollars in spending from the federal government, and yes, that did start when President Trump was in office, and you have 40-year high inflation. And so when you start removing that, when you start setting fire to money, the come, if the, the run-up is unprecedented and historic, well, the collapse will be unprecedented and historic. Yeah, and we're, and, we're and feeling – recession is, unavo- is unavoidable. The economy already contracted in the first quarter. Yeah, whether it, it, whether it contracts again – we don't know if it will contract again this quarter or if that back-to-back thing happens next year at some point. It does kind of feel like it's coming. Meanwhile, we had this – quote-unquote solution today from President Biden saying he wants to do a holiday, a temporary holiday on the gas tax. It's getting panned all over the place, including from Democrats, a number of whom have come out and said they just won't support it. Pelosi's mom, Schumer's not committing to it. Jason Furman, a Democratic economist, says actually that will be inflationary. A lot of people pointing out it will save the American people very little, but it will enrich the oil companies more uh, in addition to being slightly inflationary, which seems to be exactly what Biden is trying to rail against. Meanwhile, in this announcement rolling this out, and by the way, Barack Obama in 2008 called it a gimmick that achieves nothing. So he's getting pushback. He's out of options. And you can tell because he keeps saying the same dumb things over and over again. Here he was earlier in Cut 42. Wait for the Putin blame and the Republican blame, because here it comes. For all those Republicans in Congress criticizing me today for high gas prices in America, are you now saying we were wrong to support Ukraine? Are you saying we were wrong to stand up to Putin? Are you saying that we would rather have lower gas prices in America and Putin's iron fist in Europe? I don't believe that. Look, I get the easy politics of the attack. I get that. But the simple truth is gas prices are up almost $2 a gallon because Vladimir Putin's ruthless attack on Ukraine, and we wouldn't let him get away with it. So, Dagan, it's Putin again, even though Powell's saying what he's saying in terms of leading drivers. And he's basically saying, oh, well, I guess the Republicans just wanted Putin to win and America not to do anything, which is not the Republican position. There's no agency taken, no responsibility taken here whatsoever by him and his decisions. And it's like, here we go again with this same lame stuff. Um, It's 
vile that he's essentially accusing Republicans of not wanting to help uh, Ukraine and still using Putin as the reason that gasoline prices are up. Let me turn that on its head. The reason that Vladimir Putin was able to invade Ukraine was because what Joe Biden and the people in his administration did to our energy sector. From day one, as promised on the campaign trail, in Keystone XL pipeline, again, moratorium on new leases on federal land, and it's what all of what's been going on behind the scenes in terms of the regula- regulatory crackdown, on which is still happening, which no one talks about. Like the Securities and Exchange Commission um, is, is imposing a rule on companies that will require vast new reporting requirements on global warming risk. They have sent the message behind the scenes to finance companies, don't you dare finance any new oil and gas projects, any new fossil fuel projects. So my point is, because Biden and company went to war on our fossil fuel companies, went to war against our energy companies, taking a chainsaw to the prosperity of our economy and and reducing our power on the world stage, you do that we were the swing producer. We controlled – we had the most excess production capacity in the world. We controlled the global price of oil because of that excess production capacity. Well, we lost Dagan, that. Wait, let me just finish this. We sure. lost that. And so what Biden and company did was drive up the global price of oil. And by doing that, he empowered and enriched Vladimir Putin – period, enabling Putin to invade Ukraine. So if the blood is on anybody's hands, it is on the hands of this commander in chaos, Joe Biden, and the people who work for him. And for him to stand up there and accuse people of essentially being against uh, pro-Putin and against the Ukrainian people, it is not just audacious. It is vile and disgusting. It is truly odious for this for Joe Biden to do that. And and this gas tax relief, it won't do jack because nobody's going to get on board with it. Nancy Pelosi called it showbiz, very showbiz in late March. So he's trying anything. And what's he, what is he going to do? He's going to try and blame the Republicans again because they're not going to they're not going to pass it. But the Democrats aren't either. And yeah, the de- Dems aren't either. And the Republicans aren't even in power, which is the other problem here. And one other point on the Putin stuff, he greenlit Putin's pipeline into Germany while killing our own pipeline here in North America, which is crazy. Some of the points you're making about his hostility to energy production here at home, the CEO of Chevron made that point. Biden was asked about it. He said, I didn't know these oil executives, quote, could get their feelings hurt that quickly. 30 seconds, Dagan, 20 seconds, go. Gene Sperling said on with Martha McCallum that it's going to be all hands on deck in dealing with the energy companies. Well, two hands aren't going to be there and two uh, and two feet. It's Joe Biden. He's not even going to show up. And in terms of economic policy, this gas tax holiday for three months, it is pure tea idiocy. The yeah, it doesn't do anything. we got to go. Dagan McDowell, 5 p.m. hour, FBN tonight. We'll be watching Dagan. Thank you. Right back after this.
Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. We talked yesterday at some length about the latest bombshell developments out of Uvalde, Texas. And it was just shocking. I mean, you know that it's bad. How could it not be given what happened? And then it gets worse and worse. Last night, the mayor of Uvalde was firing back rhetorically at the state police, saying that they are trying to protect their own people, but he wasn't actually really refuting any of the things that were alleged and or proved by the Department of Public Safety either. So obviously there's a huge, very ugly food fight underway. It's very sad to see. I'm not really taking sides because DPS could be at fault in some ways here, but the fact that Uvalde has been so opaque and trying to cover things up and hide things, and that they're lashing out at critics and saying, well, they also are to blame for some stuff without refuting or rebutting with facts what's directly in front of us. Look, if you want to be transparent, show us everything. Let's get body cam footage. Let's do everything. If people are lying about what happened, let's get that out there. But there's been a lot of lying already. And a lot of that, unfortunately, has come from the officials on the ground. There was another detail that I read that just sort of took my breath away. One of the officers responding on scene who was there, his wife was one of the teachers dying on the other side of the door. He knew that she was dying. She had told him this. He, of course, wanted to go in. He was detained by fellow officers and escorted away so he wouldn't go in. I I don't know what to say about that. It's just absolutely shocking i saw that they announced that they're going to be demolishing this school rob elementary they're just going to demolish it it's such a horrible place where something truly horrific happened and they're going to i guess just rebuild a new school i know this sometimes happens after places have a terrible event like this i guess i get that a lot of people are saying there are other places in that town that might need to be knocked to the ground and the earth salted before the school itself, at least in terms of legacy and accountability. In order to be law enforcement positive and supporting the police in an authentic way, you have to be able to call out disastrous failures. The police aren't perfect. Sometimes they have to make really tough decisions in really tough spots in bang-bang moments, and they get second-guessed to death. And I think a lot of the time that's unfair. And a lot of people come after them in bad faith. They're anti-cop. We don't do that here. But this was not bang-bang. This was more than an hour where they waited and then told a bunch of things to superiors at the state level, to the governor's office, that were not true. They were fumbling with keys on another door to try to find a master key for like an hour, they say, when the door to the actual classroom was unlocked the whole time. They had grown, trained men, heavily armed and armored, right outside the door for the better part of an hour, knowing that children were dying on the other side. And they didn't do anything. Parents were being tased and cuffed outside to prevent them from coming in and doing anything to help their kids while the officers stood there apparently on the say-so in the orders of this one guy, Arredondo. I joked on Twitter yesterday, can we find some bad tweets? Can we unearth and resurface some bad tweets 
from Chief Arredondo, it seems like that's the only way we get quote-unquote accountability in this deeply unhealthy society of ours these days. Well, I mean, you failed miserably and people died, but let's wait and see. You've just got sworn into your new political seat. You've still got your gun and your badge. Oh, did he use some sort of slur on social media seven years ago? Now he's really cooked. And yes, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but it's from a place of anger and just disgust in general with this situation and also our messed up accountability metrics in this country and in this current society. What gets punished harshly, what doesn't, what doesn't. But you had parents being detained, it was like zip tied or pepper sprayed, whatever they did to the parents, they stay out of the building, you can't help. You have an actual armed officer with a bunch of people with rifles and shields and helmets and his wife is dying and he knows it and rather than going in and doing what must be done in an active shooter situation they effectively arrest that fellow officer to make sure that he can't buck the leadership and go save some lives including his wife's it's just it's unconscionable that's why we're going to keep talking about it even though it is probably the least pleasant thing that I can imagine talking about. I don't like this topic at all. But it is what it is, and we're going to look at it with clear eyes. We have to. All of us. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Primary night in a number of key races last night. Josh Krasauer is here to break it all down. Straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a new hour here on the guy benson show our middle out of three between three and six p.m eastern every weekday on this wednesday thank you very much for listening GuyBensonShow.com is our website that's GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free of charge, on demand, every day. Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal, a Fox News Radio political analyst. And starting next month, as we've mentioned a few times, he will be the senior politics reporter for Axios. In fact, Josh, I saw that you had your farewell column at National Journal today, your last against the grain, probably a bittersweet moment. Yeah, I mean, when you write a column that uh, has kind of had that same ethos for 12 years, it's hard to imagine doing anything else. But the good news is that uh, I'm going to be starting a a new weekly newsletter at Axios, covering a lot of the same issues, having the same sensibility in my way, a unique way of covering politics and analyzing politics. So I don't think a whole lot is going to change, but Axios will be the place to read my analysis of reporting going forward. That is starting in July. So let's analyze some politics, some races last night that we were keeping an eye on. Let's start in Georgia. There were some runoffs in Georgia, and I know that a lot of attention has been paid to the Peach State for a number of reasons, including Donald Trump and his endorsements have not really panned out this cycle so far. In that state, certainly the big blow being Brian Kemp with his blowout win in the nomination fight over Trump's handpicked challenger. 
Brad Raffensperger, who was at the January 6th committee this week, he won outright in the Republican primary as well, avoiding even a runoff. And then we had some congressional seats last night that had gone to runoffs. What happened there, Josh? Yeah, you had two very safely Republican House seats in Georgia where the Trump-endorsed candidate was well behind in the initial round of balloting uh, last month and got trounced in, in the, these runoffs, uh, three-to-one margins in, in about both these, these races. Now, keep in mind that the, the, the guys who won, the, the future congressmen elected in these two races, are very pro-Trump. They're very conservative. Even though they didn't get the endorsement, they, they don't have a whole lot of disagreements with the former president. But it goes to show, consistent with what we saw in Georgia last month as well, Trump's endorsement doesn't mean a whole lot. Governor Kemp won 70-plus percent of the vote without it. Brad Raffensperger won without a runoff without it. Georgia seems to be the epicenter of a very independent-minded Republican electorate. And I think it's because of what you mentioned, Guy. These are the voters who saw the Senate lost, saw Democrats pick up two very winnable Georgia Senate seats last year because the president told his voters to stay home. And I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse. There's a lot of awareness about the need, even if you like Trump, to keep, keep Republicans in charge. And they're, that they, they were not willing to listen to Trump on every candidate that yeah. he endorsed. And I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that Trump told his supporters to stay home, but he sent very mixed messages saying, oh, you got to vote for these two people. Let's go get Kelly Leffler and David Perdue in the Senate. But then also saying at the same time, often from the same stage, that everything's rigged and, you know, the votes may not really be counted properly. And a lot of people internalized that and said, well, I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to bother. And the rest is history. The Democrats were able to win because of that message. And I think this is something that we've already talked about, Josh. But again, we're seeing another manifestation of this phenomenon. If you want to win a Republican primary, especially in pretty red places, you cannot be aggressively Trump hostile. You can't be anti-Trump. But he can be against you or hostile to you as long as you're not reciprocating the hostility and you're generally fairly MAGA or fairly you know, conservative and sticking on those issues and looking forward. You can not only survive in some cases, you can thrive. I think that's an interesting dynamic, and we saw it in those two races yesterday. Meanwhile, let's go not too far from Georgia, Alabama, a runoff in that Senate race. This has been – I was on Stuart Varney's show earlier on Fox Business Network, and he asked me about Katie Britt's win. Young woman, she's 40. She could probably be in the U.S. Senate if she wants to for decades at this point as a very young person who is now – basically guaranteed to become the next U.S. senator from Alabama. She beat Mo Brooks in the runoff. And this has been a bit of a bumpy trail for Trump and his endorsement saga. What he'll say is, my endorsed candidate, Katie Britt, won and won big, and you're welcome. Uh, True, to a certain extent, also misleading in a lot of ways, Talk about the dynamics of this race and how Katie Britt became the Republican nominee for the Senate in Alabama. Right. So first, some background on Katie Britt, who I I agree with you, Guy. I think she'll be one of the more impressive young senators uh, who who was a rising star in the party. Uh, But she was attacked by Trump as a rhino, as Mitch McConnell's candidate, which is all true. I mean, the McConnell part is true that that McConnell did really like uh, Katie Britt. She was Senator Shelby. This is a retiring senator in Alabama who's opening up his seat. Uh, he was. She was his chief of staff. She ran 
what amounted to the Chamber of Commerce in Alabama. She is like a traditional Republican, and Trump went after her when she first got in the race. But she ran a great campaign. Mo Brooks, one of the other candidates who ran against her in the runoff, kicked off Trump because at one of the rallies he had, he, he, signif- he signified that he wanted to move on past 2020, and that, that, that upset Donald Trump. And like you said, Guy, Katie Britt won, came in first place by quite a bit in, in the primary, and it was clear she was going to win this runoff. So Trump, and he's done this in a few cases, he wants to get on the winning side of a campaign. He's endorsed some candidates because he knew they were going to win. He may not agree with them on everything. He may have had, had some you know, doubts at one point, but he wanted to be uh, get get behind a winner. He but wanted to put a W on the winner on the, on the scoreboard, right? Because uh, he could that like that sort of adds to his batting average. But again, I don't really think the math quite works that way because he was a Mo Brooks guy, as you said. He unendorsed Brooks, and his explanation was ridiculous. His un, his explanation was, "Oh, he went woke, crazy." The real explanation was Mo Brooks was in a distant third place and it was going to be an embarrassment for Trump's endorsement record. So he just shed that endorsement, unendorsed Brooks. Brooks then surged from third place, pretty down, into second place, forcing a runoff. And then he made a big pitch saying, please re-endorse me. I'm your guy. I'm sort of MAGA personified. Come on back. Let's do this together. Trump looked at the polling, which had Brit up 20 points and said, nope, that's my girl now, even though I'd attacked her previously. And then what he'll argue accurately is her margin went up. So with Trump behind her plus her existing lead, that put her into you know a very easy, comfortable win territory. I think it was roughly 30 points last time I checked. She'll be the nominee. Just again, some interesting things at play on Trump and his control over the party and his power within the party and all the influence. It is by no means gone. It remains very strong. It's just different than what it used to be. And I might come back to you on that a little bit later in the interview, Josh, if we have time. But first, let's keep going on what happened last night in some of these primary races. Two big House seats in Virginia, where the Republicans are really hoping to flip those seats blue to red. And it seems like the GOP is pretty pleased with the nominees that have emerged from those races, both of them are women. What can you tell us about the Virginia contests? Yeah, the, so the big race, well, both of them are big races. They're both bellwethers, swing districts. But uh, the Virginia 2nd District seat held by Democrat Elaine Luria, that is one of the swingiest seats in the country. It usually goes with the political tide. And you have uh, State Senator Kiggins, uh, Jen Kiggins, who uh, is a, actually, she, I think she served on the same Navy ship as Congresswoman Luria. They, they, they both know each other. They're both Navy veterans, have, have a strong record of military service. But look, in this political environment, in a swing district where the Republicans look like they're going to gain a whole lot of seats, uh, advantage Republican. I, I think this is, at worst, a toss-up for, for the Republican Party, but I think Higgins may actually end up with a slight advantage just because of the national mood. Uh, there was some effort by Democrats. They spent a little money to try to uh, get behind a, a far-right candidate in that primary, and it didn't work. Uh, Keegan's won pretty, pretty overwhelmingly in, in that primary. Uh, in the 7th District, that's the Abigail Spanberger seat, uh, that's a little more Democratic. It's a little less of a true, true swing district. But you have an interesting candidate in, in Leslie Vega, who is a county executive from the most populous part of the district, Prince William County. And, and, and more importantly, I think she's a, a very uh, politically engaged Latina uh, who ran Latina's 
for Trump, Latinas for Youngkin in, in Virginia. And uh, that that's a storyline that we're going to be watching closely, not just in that Virginia race guy, but mm-hmm. there are at least five and maybe more Latina Republicans on the ballot in swing districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the diversity of this Republican recruiting class is an underplayed storyline. And with Vegas victory in Virginia, that's going to be not only a bellwether race, but one that may signify the growth of uh, Hispanic candidates, Hispanic Republicans uh, running as, as future uh, leaders within the party. Which is a national trend. Look at Myra Flores making history not long ago down in Texas as well. And we talked about that. Josh, in Washington, D.C., Mayor Bowser has been renominated as the Democratic nominee for mayor. Uh, it was a crowded field, a bit of a bruising race. She was the favorite in the incumbent, but they were coming after her from the left. She won, which means that she will win re-election. Republicans don't win anything ever in Washington, D.C. I think for a national audience, people might be saying, she was awful. She was making all of these bad moves and getting caught in hypocrisy on masking stuff and the crime has gotten so bad. How can the people of Washington stick with that leadership? I tend to agree. It seems crazy. But then you also look at some of the competition and she is arguably the least crazy of those people. That's the state of D.C. politics. What do you make of that and Bowser winning the way she did? Well, that's exactly right, guys, that um, she's She's a moderate in the sense of D.C. politics, not in the sense of, of national politics. So you had two very left-wing candidates who were challenging her, and the city council in Washington is very very left-wing as well. And that is how you have to view that race. That, that Any alternative to Muriel Bowser would have been – you know, defund the police, Democratic Party. Yep. Uh, in fact, you, you, that was the big issue in the race, that she actually wanted to put more resources for cops. The very left-wing Washington, D.C. City Council was resisting that, and her opponents in this race wanted to defund the police, allocate more money away from the police force. She wanted to put more money into the police force. So it is a win when you look at San Francisco, you look at some of these blue city races. Yeah. It definitely is a win for moderation. That No one would call Muriel Bowser a moderate no. in grand outlook of the national democratic party and just imagine if you're listening anywhere but washington dc which is most of our audience imagine being a republican in dc where your best option by far for mayor is muriel bowser oh woof but that's the reality of dc politics josh coming back i sort of teased this and hinted at it a moment ago and i'll probably ask josh holmes about this a little bit later on in the show as well there's a fair amount of ooing and eyeing going on today about a poll out of New Hampshire among Republicans where Ron DeSantis has just ever so slightly overtaken Donald Trump in a 2024 hypothetical primary matchup. I think it's stupid and silly at this stage of this long game to get overly hyped up over any of this stuff. And, you know, one poll out of one state, uh, it's like everyone can just take a breath no matter what you think of Trump or DeSantis. But to see a poll not in Florida that shows DeSantis competitive and not at some sort of conference or straw poll, but an actual scientific poll with Republican voters kind of neck and neck, running even with even slightly a nose ahead of Donald Trump, it's newsworthy just because it does inform the conversation potentially about the future of the Republican Party I wonder, is this, in your mind, a data point to think about and talk about, or is this something to discard until there's a few of them that lead to some sort of a trend? 
Uh, I, I think it's worth paying attention to. And it's a, it's a one poll at small sample size. So, again, I agree with your cautionary uh, guidance there, Guy. But you, I can't remember a single New Hampshire poll throughout the 2016 campaign where Trump was losing. I mean, this, there, there, there's a certain shock value in seeing any poll, no matter how small uh, a sample size or how, you know, you know, how much of an outlier it may be in a moment, where Trump is not leading uh, as a former president. And look, I, I do think that any time you look at polling this early on in the cycle, a former president, someone with a big name, is always going to have an inherent advantage. So when you do see polls with a challenger, someone who's obviously popular with conservatives, but maybe not have quite that same profile, competitive or even ahead in this poll, I think it's worth paying attention to. Yeah. And look, I, I wrote in my final column today, Guy, that we always, we always kind of look at the last election to guide us forward, but usually there are a lot of leading indicators that are more important to pay attention to. And I think this is a data point in that direction. I, I, I do think that we're not going to see Biden and Trump in 2024. I think we're going to see two new people running hmm. for both parties or winning both parties' nominations. Interesting. And DeSantis is definitely the, the, the elephant in the room, so to speak, no, the guy if he decides to run. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about that. I, I don't know. I'm not convinced. I think there's a long way to go. DeSantis could be having a moment. He could fizzle. He could underperform in Florida, for example, this year. He's got to win there first before we even start seriously having this conversation. What makes me most interested in this one polling data point is that even if it is an outlier, there have been a handful of things in the last few months pointing in this direction that he could potentially seriously upend this whole thing. And there might be people who voted for Trump twice, who like him and think he did a good job as president, who still might be ready maybe to move on toward the future, someone younger, not looking backwards as much. And if you start getting more examples like this or data points, that could sort of feed into a sense of almost permission slip politics where it's like, okay, you can be a loyal Trump supporter and also think maybe it's time for something new. And I'm not the only one feeling that way. Maybe that will be the phenomenon. Maybe this will go absolutely nowhere and Trump could waltz to the thing if he runs. I don't know. We'll find out. Josh Krasauer, politics editor for a few more days. At National Journal, a Fox News radio political analyst, and starting very soon, he'll be joining Axios, as he mentioned. Josh, appreciate it. Talk to you next time in your new position. Thanks, Guy. Looking forward to it. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. We were talking just a few moments ago with Josh Krasauer about 2024 and Republicans. Way too early analysis, in my view, but still interesting, intriguing. What about on the Democratic side? There has been a little bit of a boomlet, just a bit of buzz recently, about Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, and his potential interest in running if it's not going to be Joe Biden, if he bows out or ducks out for whatever reason in 2024, there are people talking about Newsom. David Axelrod was mentioning Gavin Newsom on the list of potential folks who could be strong. I think Kamala Harris will have something to say about all of this. I saw Jim Clyburn pre-endorsed her if it's not Biden, and that is potentially significant. But Gavin Newsom, I know he's a big state, blue state governor, And I think he's attacking people regularly like Ron DeSantis, not by accident. I think he has his eyes on this prize. But does the country really want to elect someone who personifies the California model of governance, really? 
I think having a fight between do we want America to be California or America to be not California, I think a lot of Republicans would be very comfortable having that debate. That's just my thought. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the program and halfway through the broadcast week. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. We are going to chat in the next hour with Josh Holmes of the Ruthless Podcast, longtime McConnell aide, about, among other things, the bill that advanced in the Senate last night, a bipartisan bill on community safety, school safety, mental health, and firearm background checks. That's sort of the combination that made its way into this compromise bill. I saw a lot of the reaction last night on social media pouring in from the right wing and the left wing, and everyone was very angry about the bill. Right wingers are suspicious of it. They think it's a betrayal of the Second Amendment, and it's giving even a few inches to the left means that they're going to take a mile and abuse it. Lefties are saying this accomplishes nothing on the guns. It's pathetic. It's mostly right-wing stuff. And what did the Democrats actually accomplish here? That's basically the summary of those responses. Then I think there's a lot of other people saying this sounds fairly reasonable. Let's see some of the details. Let's hear the debate. But crucially, the vote to get to an actual debate and vote on the bill, the cloture vote, which needs 60, got well over 60 because the Democrats all supported it. And then 14 Republicans voted yes as well. Senators Blunt, Burr, Capito, Cassidy, Collins, Cornyn, Ernst, Graham, McConnell, Murkowski, Portman, Romney, Tillis and Young. And I know some people are saying, well, there's the list for primary challenges in the future. Let's get some stronger people in there. That's not my attitude. I overall, having looked at the outline of this bill and listened to what Senator Cornyn has said about it, and I respect Senator Cornyn. He's been on this show many times. I think he's smart and conservative. It doesn't strike me as anything close to the type of giveaway that some people are claiming it to be. In fact, I've seen some people raging against the bill and the treachery of these 14 Republicans, and then hours later saying, hey, does anyone have a good summary of what's actually in it? Which is not to say that there are not good faith critiques or even accurate critiques of this bill. I read one from Charles C.W. Cook, a big Second Amendment supporter. We've had him on this show many times talking about that issue and others. There are other people who I think are picking apart the legislation because we now have the language, the actual text, and they are worried about the way certain things are drafted, what's included, what's excluded. But I would say from my perspective, it's at least 80% reasonable to me, and it does not infringe, as far as I can see, on the Second Amendment rights of any law-abiding citizen. And I think that that is a pretty good starting point. Do I have some questions, particularly about red flag laws and how those are incentivized partially in this bill? And it's actually 
Much more complicated than that. Some people are calling it a red flag law. It's not that. There's money in the bill that would incentivize states to do red flag laws or other crisis intervention laws. They have other options as well. They're saying that there needs to be very strong due process protections in any such law at the state level that would then unlock the federal money and allow that to flow. I would like to know, for example, more details about what that language means in practice. So I still have questions. I'm just not as foaming at the mouth about this as a lot of people. And I think that Cornyn and some of the other Republicans here really did engage in a good faith effort. And you can say I'm naive and it's a giveaway to the left. I think if you look at what's actually in the bill, a lot of it has nothing to do with guns. And a lot of it is broadly popular with the American people. And a lot of people are horrified about Uvalde horrified by those kids getting slaughtered and saying, okay, if we're going to do something, because I'm not a big do something person, I'd rather do nothing than do something bad. But I think just saying nothing is acceptable, let's do nothing because we will never accept something. I'm not on board for that either. So Cornyn gave a 20 minute speech on the floor yesterday. I watched the whole thing. I think it helped me understand what is and is not in the bill. And they've put out all sorts of summaries about Democratic demands that were rejected outright. And even a few things that Republicans actually won on in internal discussions after that initial draft of principles came out. It seems like some of those internal shifts shifted rightward in the ensuing days. And so I've seen all that. I listened to Cornyn. That doesn't mean that I'm fully satisfied in every single capacity of this thing, but they have my attention, and I do believe it's a good faith effort. I do. Here's part of what Cornyn said in that lengthy speech. I don't have time to play you all 20 minutes. I just want to get a couple snippets out there for you to listen to the senator who was a lead negotiator on the Republican side, John Cornyn of Texas, cut 36. One of the pillars of this legislation is support for community-based mental health care. Following the violent attacks, we've also we've all, all heard about missed signs. And the fact is, is the New York Times recently profiled the type of young man, typically alienated, isolated, not receiving any sort of support or medical or psychiatric care, certainly not complying with their doctor's orders when it comes to taking their medication that allows them to manage their mental illness challenges. I think trying to help that type of person, deeply troubled, almost like a walking, talking red flag, get help before they're a risk to themselves or others, that should be a goal regardless of our political backgrounds in this country. Also, school safety is a component. Cornyn talked about that in his speech. School resource officers, other best practices as identified by the Secret Service and others. There's also an update on the background checks, not an expansion, but a strengthening where if someone turns 18, the day they turn 18, it should not be impossible for background checkers for that database to look at any major incidents or convictions that person may have had as a juvenile. If that 18-year-old was torturing animals and engaged in violent behavior, that should play into a background check. It should not be invisible. That doesn't make any sense. So I think that update is something that strikes me as sensible as well. There are discussions on both sides. I understand some of the drawbacks. I definitely understand the suspicions. 
and the fear about what the Democrats might try to do with all of this. But I think it's important to look at a proposal on its merits. And that's something we're going to continue to do here on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, I'd like to respond. Megan Rapino, the women's soccer star, a big wokester, she has decided to weigh in on something, this time trans issues. We'll tell you what she said. I'll respond next. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the week, we mentioned briefly that the world governing body of international swimming came out with new regulations and rules that effectively bar trans women from participating in women's swimming. They're creating some sort of open competition option for people in that category, but with some specific exceptions and some specific rules, the blanket summary is effectively... If you were born a male, you cannot compete against biological females in swimming because it's not fair. And there's a built-in biological inherent advantage even after a full transition. And I think that that is fair and correct. And I think a lot of people who are pro-trans rights and pro-human dignity and treating people with kindness and respect also agree that there are certain things, lines of fairness, That shouldn't be crossed. And when they are, it makes a mockery of fair play and competition. See, e.g., Leah Thomas and her dominance in the women's category after being mediocre as a male competitor in the men's side of the sport. And so enter into this fray Megan Rapinoe, the loudmouth women's soccer star on Team USA, who's always jumping on board every left-wing woke thing. She's the anthem kneeler, all of that, right? That's her shtick. It is very well for her. She's become very famous and very rich. And she has decided, unsurprisingly, to come out against this decision and call it effectively right-wing bigotry. And the way that she's talking about this, the way that she's entered this discussion, I think is very interesting, given her position in the country, given her biography, given her skill set, given the realm in which she has risen to fame and fortune. She said, quote, I'm 100% supportive of trans inclusion. This is a Time Magazine interview meaning that she's opposed to bills banning biological males from competing in women's and girls' sports. Quote, frankly, I think what a lot of people know is versions of the right's talking points because they're very loud, Rapino continued. They're very consistent, and they're relentless. I would just say I think some of the activists on the other side of this issue are extremely loud and extremely relentless. If she wants to say that's the right wing, I think the right wing has met its match, and to claim that one side is just more consistent, more relentless, and louder is not an accurate reflection of reality on these issues, especially activists and the megaphone that they often get from the media. Now, the people in charge of this particular sport, swimming, they looked at this, they studied it very carefully, and they voted overwhelmingly on this decision. That's not a bunch of right-wingers all caving to some misleading talking points. 
The facts are the facts. The numbers and the times are what they are. Months ago on this show, we read a lengthy letter from a large group of alumni of a varsity collegiate women's swimming program in the NCAA. A lot of women very thoughtfully, very respectfully making their case to protect their sport and maintaining fair competition. They are not a bunch of right-wingers to a woman who've been taken in by political spin. And I think to make that suggestion is actually quite insulting to female athletes, many of whom object to this stuff, understandably. Rapino, of course, thinks that she knows better because she always thinks that she knows better. That's her whole shtick. Here she is wagging her fingers at a bunch of women right, left, and center across the spectrum, who just want to be able to compete in a way that is fair with a level playing field against people who do not have an unfair biological advantage. She went on, quote, I would encourage everyone out there who's afraid someone's going to have an unfair advantage over their kid to really take a step back and think what we're actually talking about here. We're talking about people's lives. I'm sorry, your kid's high school volleyball team just isn't that important. This is Rapino talking. It's not more important than any one kid's life. Very interesting statement coming from a female sports star. Hey, girls. Hey, young ladies. Hey, parents of girls. Your women's sports, your girl sports, ultimately really doesn't matter. It's not that important. Let's put things in perspective. We're talking about people's lives. Your high school volleyball team really isn't that important. I'm not even paraphrasing. I'm quoting her. It's not more important than any one kid's life. And the proposition here is that by not allowing a trans girl to compete against biological females, that is endangering the life of that trans person who will feel further marginalized. Number one, I think it's very, very fascinating that someone who has made it to the pinnacle of women's sports in terms of fame and fortune is turning around and telling all the people below her, you know what, it really doesn't matter that much. Your competition, get over it. Trans stuff matters more. I know on the left they have this term that they use a lot, which is pulling up the ladder behind you. They throw this at me on LGBT stuff. Like when I come out, for example, against teaching gender identity to first graders. Like, oh, someone's pulling up the ladder behind him. It's used generally as a derogatory accusation. This kind of smacks of that, does it not? In reality, though. Like it's not a bad faith thing. It's sort of like, okay... She's made it to the top. She's fought, as so many female athletes have, the overall indifference that sometimes people and sort of patronizing way that people talk about women's and girls' sports. Like, oh, it's just about fun and friendship and discipline, but it doesn't really matter. Pat on the head, move along. That's the type of mentality that a lot of women and girls in sports have been fighting for decades. And here's Megan Rapino straight up endorsing it in order to make the case that you should force trans girls, even if they're not fully transitioned, by the way, in a lot of these cases, Leah Thomas, for instance, is not, 
Just force them into women's competition because it doesn't really matter that much. Don't their lives matter more? The second point I will make is this. I think let's just take Megan Rapino at her word. Let's hold her to her own standard. I think it's time for Megan Rapino to give up her slot on the roster of the U.S. women's soccer team. She should give that up to a faster, stronger trans woman. I'm sure that they're out there. Why does Megan Rapino? I think there should be maybe a few of them. It might give Team USA a better chance of winning. And I guess that just, that's fair, so let's get them in here. And I think Megan Rapino should lead by example. She should surrender her slot on the women's team and give it to a trans woman. And while she's at it, by the way, I think it's important for inclusivity, for visibility, because this stuff saves lives. For visibility, I think she should also give up her endorsement deals or at least give a cut to trans athletes. Right? She, I think she's an endorser of Subway sandwiches. I think she could just hand that sandwich, hand that flatbread off to a trans athlete. Because after all, it doesn't really matter that much, Megan. Haven't you made enough money? It's not more important than someone's life. So get off the women's team. Literally seed the field, please. Lead by example and give up your slot. Because you just said it doesn't really matter that much. What matters is inclusivity, representation, visibility. These things save lives. If we can save one life, and it might not just be a trans athlete who desperately wants to be on the women's team, whose life could be saved by giving her that slot, it could be other trans people just watching all of this play out because visibility itself and representation saves lives. So because it doesn't matter, and because fairness and competition apparently is sort of a second or third tier issue, and it's all about people's lives, Megan Rapino, I beg you, for the sake of issues of life and death, step away from the sport. Maybe move into another realm. Don't take some coaching gig or an on-air gig. I think those should be reserved for trans women. And who are you to stand in their way? Honestly, wouldn't that be selfish? It's time to be selfless, Megan Rapino. Lead by example. Put your money where your big mouth is. Gosh, I wonder if she'll do these things. Let's all wait and find out. Stay tuned for that, right? final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome into our final hour on the program. Each day sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. So good. TheLongDrink.com, their website. Type in your zip code. You can see where it's sold near you. Really expanding now in upwards of 40 states across the country. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Our website here at the show, family friendly, available to all ages is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free. It is on demand every single day. 
after the show concludes, just after 6 p.m. Eastern time. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts also for you at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, joining us now is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Calvary LLC, longtime aide to U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, and co-host of the Ruthless Podcast. And Josh, we were on special report together last night on the news channel, and we are reunited here on the radio. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Guy. No, it was a special treat, right? I mean, they put the two of us on the same panel. I sat with Pavlich on Fox News Sunday. I feel like we're really teaming up on people here. I am uh, very much enjoying it. And you were able to handle Leslie Marshall on the panel last night, and I was able to just sit back and enjoy most of it. And you mentioned Katie Pavlich. I saw that she was on Ruthless. As a matter of fact, my husband ran into her about a block away from us. She was stopping by the liquor store to bring goodies. You have to know your audience, and she clearly does. This, She was so well-prepared. Guy, listen to this. Not only did she bring us some bourbon, uh, which is, you know, fantastic. She brought us an extinct animal burger. Now, I don't even know, like, how you get your hands on something like this, but, you know, she does all those tours for Fox Nation going to hunting lodges and whatnot. Anyway, she somehow ended up with an extinct animal that they had uh, ground into burger and given it to us. Uh, for the Ripless Variety Program, that's a, as good as it gets. Wow. I mean, this is probably why I have not been invited back on the show since the very early <laughs> days, because I have brought no bribes at all let alone exotic bribes. <laughs> exotic bribes are definitely a good way to get back. No question about it. <laughs> All right. I want to cover a lot of ground with you here, Josh. So let's uh, strap in and get going. I want to start with goings on in the U.S. Senate. There's this bill, and I, a lot of people are calling it the gun control bill. I'm not sure that's the right way to frame it because there's not a ton about guns or gun restrictions in this legislation that cleared the Senate, got 14 Republican votes Last night, I know a lot of people on the 2A right are very angry. I know a lot of people on the anti-2A left are very angry about it. Your former boss, Mitch McConnell, has endorsed it. He voted in favor of cloture. He was one of those 14 Republicans. But there are plenty of other Republicans up in arms, very concerned, very suspicious of this whole push. I just wonder how you're thinking about what Senator Cornyn and Senator Murphy hammered out. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I have tremendous respect for Senator Cornyn, particularly on these issues. I mean, he's as conservative as the day is long, a Second Amendment supporter since since day one. Uh, but he's also been able to get in and actually make meaningful changes to the system over the years. I, mean, I don't know if you recall, I think this is like four or five years ago, there was a church shooting, terrible church shooting in Texas. And the person who was responsible, the, the murderer, um, basically was able to obtain weapons because of a loophole in the system that didn't allow the NICS system, which is what you use for background checks, right. uh, to talk to each other between state and federal authorities effectively. And and so, you know, again, a thorny issue, he was able to navigate and actually fix that system. And so he came into this with an awful lot of credibility as someone who could find solutions to these problems without jeopardizing your Second Amendment rights. And I, I think just even further with that guy, what I've found on issues like this, that are deeply culturally different, and you know the, the left, what their goals are, right? So naturally, base Republican constituencies, certain, certainly Second Amendment supporters are skeptical of anything because you know what their ultimate aims are. But I think when it comes to these issues, what you got to do is actually read through what it is that they've done here. I mean, you mentioned at the top, not really a gun control bill. I agree with that. 
there's an awful lot of school safety, mental health components to this that really kind of do the paddling. But what everybody's talking about are the, the funds that go to states to implement what we call red flag laws. And, and those or are other become, laws, right? It doesn't have to be red flag laws. Exactly. And they're not required to do so at the state level under this bill. I think that's a fairly relevant and important distinction here. Very relevant, very important, because, because of the following, right? New York has very, very restrictive gun laws, right? D.C., you can't have a gun. I mean, there, there, are, there are places throughout this country, Chicago, that have incredibly restrictive gun laws. I would argue they're completely ridiculous and they do no good because that's where you see the most violent crime anyway. But those places handle it the way they want to handle it. The most important part from a Second Amendment supporter from my standpoint is that your states are not overridden by some federal law that has a sort of one-size-fits-all compliance in order to obtain a firearm. And I, I think they were pretty careful here to ensure that the state, the governors and the state legislatures that are ultimately held accountable by their constituents are the ones that are going to be make, making the calls on if they do anything more than they've already done. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that I still have concerns about when it comes to red flag laws, which is one of the options available to states to make them eligible to get some of this money, they have other options as well, is the component of due process, where you can't have someone just yeah. coming in and abusing and saying, I don't like that person, I'm going to mess with them and get their guns confiscated, and then they can go to court and maybe figure it out. I am worried about that. I think crafting this stuff properly matters. I think the Florida law, for example, is pretty good. Cornyn and other supporters have said that there are very robust requirements on due process if you pass a red flag law at the state level to get the money attached to this bill. I would like more details on that. I am not necessarily gung-ho for every single component of this, but I do think there's been, from my perspective, and I know that there are going to be some other folks who disagree in the audience, I think some of the opposition on the right has been overwrought. People saying this is he's a traitor, these 14 people should be primaried immediately, a massive betrayal, taking our guns away. I think that is overstating it, and I think there's a reason why the hardcore anti-gun left is equally furious about what they've put together, and I think we're going to see that debate continue to play out in the coming days. Josh, to 2022 and some of these Senate races that I know you've been watching very carefully, you've been on the Laxalt train for a while out in Nevada. Yeah. He just won that primary recently. Adam Laxalt's going to be the nominee against Senator Cortez Masto. That seems like a real pickup opportunity for the GOP. How do you see Nevada, and where would you rank Nevada among Georgia, Arizona, maybe New Hampshire? Where does Nevada land in terms of the opportunity here for a pickup for the GOP? Well, I, I think Georgia and Nevada are basically hand-in-hand hand at this point. Um, you know, Certainly Adam is probably the top recruit into this 2022 class, and he had a primary, uh, passed it with flying colors. Got a lot of base support. He had endorsements from everybody from President Trump to Ron DeSantis to you know, McConnell and others. So he's, he's sort of united the party out there, which is an important piece of that because you know, ultimately Democrats have carried that state uh, basically since 2014, right? Um, and so, it, it, look, it's still a competitive state. The environment as Adam says, Nevada is on the top of every bad list in America, right? So if your unemployment is bad, it's worse in Nevada. If your gas prices are bad, it's worse in Nevada, and so on and so on. And so the environment is, is very, very favorable. All that being said, Chuck Schumer has already thrown $49 million into trying to defend Catherine Cortez Masso. And so 
this is certainly not going down without a fight. They're going to be way, way out-resourced on the Republican side of this fight. But, you know, ultimately, we've got a pretty good candidate and a really good message. Well, and as I always love to say, Democrats hate money in politics, except for their (laughs) own. They love Democratic money in politics. It's just the dangerous right-wing cash that's subverting democracy. That's a very important distinction, I think, for all of us to keep in mind. Uh, Some money is very bad, other money very good, and it just depends on who that money is trying to support and elect. It's really that simple. You name-checked Georgia there. Josh, Herschel Walker, another guy who united the party. He's got a lot of support from a lot of different people. You look at that campaign from the outside, and he doesn't really seem like he's doing all that much campaigning necessarily. When he's asked about certain issues, he is very green when it comes to politics. I think that's fair. Much more comfortable on a football field than on a debate stage. Raphael Warnock, I think, is a real radical who's out there, but he's a talented communicator and a talented politician. And then you've got this whole thing about previously undisclosed children that Walker has fathered, and I think he's trying to take that in stride. Where does that race hit you? Because I know there are some Republicans who feel like it's super winnable, they're nervous and anxious about Herschel, but they think that maybe his overall brand in the state plus the national environment puts him over the top. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I mean, what I would say to people is it's time to get on board for the big win because Herschel's a nominee here. It's a state that, frankly, you can't lose and still have a Senate majority. you got to win Georgia, especially as some of these other places, you mentioned New Hampshire and Arizona, have not quite consolidated yet. I mean, it is, it is basically a topic you can't lose it if you're a Republican. Um, you know, Herschel's not a professional politician, right? I mean, this is somebody who's – this is his first time running for office. It's always a little – scary when you have a, a first-time candidate running for Senate, because, you know, other than President of the United States, that's as contentious as it's ever going to get in a campaign. And so, sure, he's trying to find his sea legs. But again, I think he knows what his core principles are, which are, are incredibly important. And he, he and the people of Georgia know him, right? They've known him since he was a, a bulldog. And so I think that as this race matures, we'll get to a point where there's just a clear, clear contrast between a conservative Republican who wants to get back to, to an economy that works for Georgians and a guy, like you said, in Raphael Warnock, that is a genuine radical, right? Regardless of what he says, I think the proof is in the pudding about yeah, look at his voting record. He now has one. Yeah. yeah. And the question right. is, do you want Georgians have to make a decision? Do they want to once again send more help to Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer? They've done that twice in 2021. Do they think that's the right direction for the country? Do they want more help in Washington for Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer? If so, it's Warnock. If not, it's Walker, period. Quickly, Josh, before we get to 2024, because I do want to look ahead, my in-laws live in Colorado. My mother-in-law was actually just texting me. The Dems are pouring millions of dollars into the Republican Senate primary out there, trying to get one of these sort of more wacko, wacky, conspiratorial people, because they feel like if that's the Republican nominee – then they can take the Colorado Senate seat completely off the board. And so they are meddling in the primary and backing people that their words say are very dangerous to democracy. Their money says, let's get them on the ballot. I think this is politics at its most cynical, and I hope Republican voters see through it wherever the Dems are trying it. No, it's, well, it's really well said. We've heard here for months that Democrats are extremely nervous about a guy named Joe O'Day. Uh, who's in that primary and, and immediately puts that seat into serious, serious jeopardy for Democrats. And what they've done before to some success is make a wager on a primary where you can spend two, three, four, five million dollars 
trying to get an unelectable Republican on a candidate that's there on, on, on a ballot that ultimately saved you $15, $20 million trying to save the seat in the end. And so, you know, they've done it before. You remember uh, Missouri with Claire McCaskill when they got mm-hmm. Todd Aiken uh, on the ballot. They've, tr- they've tried it in a number of different places. This is ultimately really what they're trying to do. I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, Guy, if they tried the same thing in Missouri with Eric Greitens as well, because I, I think that they feel like both the Colorado and Missouri, if you get the wrong Republican candidate, that it's not even on the board anymore. And to be honest with you, from a political professional standpoint, they're right. I mean, those, those races fall off the board. Colorado absolutely evaporates if, if Hanks is on the – Yeah, Missouri, I would nominee. say, goes from a safe R seat to a toss-up if it's Greitens. And the Dem- I mean, he's really a very scary figure. He's leading yeah. barely, but he has less than three-quarters of the vote because everything else is split up among a bunch of other people. And I'm just saying the Missouri Republicans have to get their act together out there because what Chuck Schumer would love is to force Republicans to spend a lot of money on a very toxic person to maybe hold a seat in a very red state. It's a disaster in the making, and it can be avoided, but there's only a couple weeks to go. I think five or six weeks to go until that primary, if memory serves. So I think that is a, a warning that needs to be said loudly as often as possible. Quick timeout, then looking ahead with Josh Holmes here on the happy hour of The Guy Benson Show next. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show with Josh Holmes. Let's talk about 2024, Josh Holmes, on both sides of the aisle. I know it's very early. I know that we're currently in a midterm cycle that's very important, but we can't resist it because there's actually some pretty juicy stuff out there. In both parties right now, starting with the Republican Party, did you see the poll today out of New Hampshire where it's Republican voters in New Hampshire and they did a hypothetical Republican primary ballot test and you've got Ron DeSantis tied. I think he's slightly ahead, actually, but virtually tied with Donald Trump within that electorate. That's the first poll that I've seen maybe outside of Florida that has DeSantis right there with Trump. What do you make of this movement? And if you end up getting this big clash with Trump and DeSantis going against each other and maybe 20 other people, by the way, where does that head? Is this poll a weird outlier? The New Hampshire poll also shows DeSantis beating Joe Biden head to head, Trump losing to Joe Biden head to head in the same poll. I don't want to put too much stuff, too much faith, too much interest into a single data point or a single survey. But it's certainly grist for the mill here, and it's opening a few eyes today. Yeah, well, I mean, look, some of this is New Hampshire, right? It's it's different. Trump won New Hampshire in 2016, but I think it was like 37 percent of the vote or something like something like that. I mean, it wasn't wasn't overwhelming. And then then he lost it uh, twice in in 16 and and 20. And so some of that comes with the territory with New Hampshire. I've been trying to tell people for months as I go out on a campaign trail in different places and different Republican enclaves, that the DeSantis thing is, is not a, a media made up deal. I mean, this is, this is very real. The, the resonance that he's had within the grassroots is very real. When he appears, it is huge applause lines. Uh, they've been following everything from COVID down to how he handled uh, Disney and everything else. And, and he's got a ton of momentum going on. Now, <clears throat> how that ultimately plays out as you get other candidates in the field and whatnot, I don't know. But I do know that DeSantis has got an incredible foothold within the grassroots of the Republican Party right now. 
Yeah, and there was this big, long profile piece, overwhelmingly negative in The New Yorker, surprise, surprise, trying to yeah, dredge right. up people from his college days anonymously saying, oh, he was a jerk, all this stuff. What I think is interesting about Ron DeSantis is how much the Democrats hate him, how much the media hates him. There's fear, I think, driving that hatred, and how much the people in Trump world seem to be threatened by him. That combination makes him, I think, more intriguing, not less to me. Very quickly, Josh, 2024, is Joe Biden the nominee, and if not, who? I, I don't think there's any chance he's the nominee, Guy. I mean, he's just not up for it, right? I mean, he's barely up to doing daily appearances as president of the United States. Putting him back on the campaign trail, I think every Democrat understands that that would be a, a miserable experience. But, like, who do you turn to? I mean, that's the right, right question. Kamala Harris is certainly not getting the job done. You, you mm. talk to some Democrats who have some faith that Pete Buttigieg has still got, you know, what it takes to make that next leap. I'm pretty skeptical about that in many ways. Um, it, you know, and then where? Amy Klobuchar? I mean, I don't, I Maybe don't know. Maybe some of these governors. I, I, who knows? But I think Biden might want to run. Kamala will feel like she's entitled to run if it's not him. Things could get interesting and ugly quickly, not just on one side of the aisle, maybe both. So 24 is fascinating to me, but it's off in the distance. The immediate task is 2022. We'll be talking about that a lot on this show, including with you, Josh Holmes, founding partner of Calvary LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast with Smug and Company. Josh, always enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah, you're the best. Talk to you soon. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier on the program today, we caught up with our friend and colleague, Dagan McDowell, on all things economic, inflation, gas prices as usual. She was fired up. Here's part of my conversation with Dagan McDowell of Fox News and the Fox Business Network. This testimony earlier from Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, just basically saying, yeah, we're not really seeing inflation easing, any signs of that right now. Cut 41. What we're looking for is, you know, compelling evidence that inflation is coming down. And we, we don't have that. So nothing I could point to says that we have that. Not surprising, Dagan, but pretty blunt. Uh, Blunt, here's the problem, the biggest problem for the American people. The only way you kill inflation is with a gut punch to the American people, uh, a punch to the solar plexus from either the Federal Reserve through higher interest rates, through you know lowering asset prices, or the federal government cutting spending. Or both combined. The fact that Biden and company, I call it can kicking. That seems to be their, you know, their strategy. That they're doing nothing to lower inflation. It means the entire burden falls on the Federal Reserve, falls on the central bank, and. They use a blunt instrument. So the likelihood of a recession, if we're not already in one, goes up so much more because the Fed uh, attacks leverage assets. Meaning, you know, we live in a leveraged economy. You raise interest rates, and they will surely cause a calamity. Over the last 80 years, when the Fed tried to lower inflation to the level it's trying to take it right now, in every instance, we've had a recession. But I do think Jay Powell is uh, up to something. Joe Biden, politically, he's um, 
economic moron, but he's also a political moron because he should have fired Jay Powell. He could have blamed all this inflation on Trump's Federal Reserve chief. But Biden didn't do that. He kept him on board. Now he's got nobody to blame. And it looks like Jay Powell, when he was asked today on that very panel, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? Jay Powell said no. No. Inflation was high before, certainly before the war in Ukraine broke out. So Jay Powell is not sitting back and acting like his Fed Reserve, our central bank, is the sole reason that inflation is where it is. So he's kind of blaming the guy who kept him in the job. That means well, Joe Biden. I found that saw- hilarious. The uh, energy secretary, Granholm, was at the briefing podium not long ago, and a reporter actually asked her about what Powell said on that front, because it's all Putin all the time with these people. He said, well, the chairman of the Fed just said it's not the lead driver, and but Biden says it is. And Granholm was like, well, I didn't see the comments, and she just completely avoided it. I noticed you tweeted earlier, Dagan, that the New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, is now using the word inevitable to describe a recession that's coming in the next 12 to 18 months. I know that a lot of experts are saying that probability is increasing and they're getting more and more worried. Talk about candor and bluntness. We've got the Fed president saying, yeah, a recession is now just absolutely coming in the next year, year and a half. That is tough to hear. Do you think he's right? Oh, he's absolutely right. Uh, I don't understand, and I I don't ever mean to sound giddy when I talk about higher interest rates, uh, the, the what the Federal Reserve is doing, an imminent recession, um, the the pain and punishment of inflation. But how can and see? I always trust like the like all the people I grew up with. I trust the American people. I don't believe in the deplorables and the rubes and the hayseeds and the hicks and the rednecks. Those people know better than the people in Washington to me. They can see this. So you look at the Federal Reserve. They had unprecedented stimulus during the COVID pandemic. They blew out the balance sheet. The balance sheet is $9 trillion. Before the financial crisis in 2008, it was $800 billion. So you've increased the balance sheet by more than $8 trillion in that period of time. They never really shrank it. All of that is is money printing. They printed money. That is money sloshing around the world, in part creating inflation. You throw in the trillions of dollars in spending from the federal government, and yes, that did start when President Trump was in office, and you have 40-year high inflation. And so when you start removing that, when you start setting fire to money, the come if the the run up is unprecedented and historic well the collapse will be unprecedented and historic yeah, and we're, and, we're and feeling the recession is unav- is unavoidable the economy already contracted in the first quarter yeah you whether have, it, and it, whether it contracts again now. we don't know if it'll contract again this quarter or if that back to back thing happens next year at some point it does kind of feel like it's coming meanwhile we had this quote-unquote solution today from President Biden saying he wants to do a holiday, a temporary holiday on the gas tax. It's getting panned all over the place, including from Democrats, a number of whom have come out and said they just won't support it. Pelosi's mom, Schumer's not committing to it. 
Jason Furman, a Democratic economist, says actually that will be inflationary. My full interview, that whole discussion with Dagan McDowell, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the whole show, every day, on demand, for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's home stretch time, and we have an exclusive here on The Guy Benson Show. Quiet Wyatt, turning 22 today. He's at Disney World on vacation. We're going to annoy him on his vacation. Cookie, get him on the horn. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Wednesday on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every single day. Well, it is a very special day here on the show because even though he's on vacation this week, Quiet Wyatt, our associate producer, is celebrating a birthday. He is turning the ripe old age of 22 today. And joining us from Orlando, Florida and Disney World is, in fact, YY the Clown slash Quiet Wyatt slash War Wyatt slash Wall Street Wyatt slash Cookie's Best Friend slash Guy's Favorite on the Team. That is the official bio written by producer Christine for Wyatt. Welcome to the show, Wyatt. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, Guy. Thank you so much. So it sounds like you are at the park right now. I can hear some background noise. Where are you at Disney? I'm at the of the Caribbean I'm about to dawn right now. Um, oh, gosh, it sounds like we have Wyatt, and he is getting sucked into the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And his phone is just going under. It's all garbled. So, Wyatt, if you can still hear me, happy birthday, sir. Enjoy your 22nd. Thank you for spending, like, 24 seconds or something, maybe 22 seconds, one second for each year you've been alive, here with us on the show. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the week. And I know Christine's going to give you an earful about your cell phone because that is her bet noir. That is her worst nightmare. Someone coming on the show and their phone sounding bad. <sighs> and we will just uh, we'll roll with the punches, Christine, and... Basically, as soon as he started talking, it was like, nope, this is not going to work. Will that make me now the favorite on the team because he called in with such a bad phone connection? No, because you were the one who booked this. Oh, you're saying this is my fault. Yeah, I'm saying this is on you. Oh, how so again? Well, because he's on vacation. Like the poor kid's on vacation trying to celebrate a birthday, and you're like harassing him and texting him and trying to get him on the show. He's just trying to ride Pirates of the Caribbean. That's all he wants in honor of Johnny Depp and his big legal victory. Just let the kid live. Um, Every vacation I've had, you have called me to do home stretch. I don't know if I've called you, but Wyatt may have texted you at my behest. And by the way, you often say no. You often just don't show up. And turn us down for the home stretch. Another reason why Wyatt is preferable in this situation. That's a good point, and I'm glad, I'm glad you raised it, actually. <laughs> well, we, want to, we do want to wish YY a very happy birthday. I don't know if you could hear him, but he is online right now for the Pirates of the Caribbean, which is a great yeah. ride. Yeah, that's the only part that I could make out, that he was getting ready to board the ride. I don't think I've ever done that ride. Of course, I haven't been to Disney World 
since I was in fifth grade. So I was about 11. Yeah. So circa 1996. So I would imagine a few things have changed since 1996 at Disney. And I have a feeling, not making fun of Wyatt here that badly, but I have a feeling you probably won't be at Disney until, say, you have children that are of age to go to Disney, correct? I think that's probably correct. And I will say, just to clarify, I was referring to Wyatt, our colleague, lovingly as a kid in this segment. He is a valued team member and an adult, and indeed now has been able to drink legally for an entire calendar year as of today. And I am proud to say that he has imbibed and enjoyed a number of long drinks over the course of that period. He is a fan, and that brings me some happiness. I know that you are too, and Dan is too. I tend to get everyone on the team into it, if you're a drinker. If you're not a drinker, then you know by all means, that's fine. But it is a delicious product, and they have it all over Florida, so maybe he's enjoying it on his Disney vacation for his 22nd birthday. And obviously, Christine, we were planning on asking a few questions of Wyatt to fill out the segment, but his phone was just failing. And frankly, maybe he was just pretending, right? Maybe he was doing one of those things like, oh, I'm losing you. I I can't hear you. Thank you so much for calling me on my vacation and birthday, Uh, but... This isn't working. It's a bad connection. And then click. Maybe he's not even close to a ride. Maybe he's just in the hotel room or like the hot tub relaxing and he doesn't want to talk to us. And I wouldn't really blame him. You think he goes in a hot tub? <laughs> With a copy of the Wall Street Journal. He probably has like. I don't want to think about him in a hot tub. <laughs> well, he'll have like trunks on in the Wall Street Journal and maybe a monocle. And he would just hang out there and read. He'd probably get the pages laminated. So they were waterproof, just in case there was any splash from some rambunctious kids or something, right? He's a serious adult. Maybe that's what he was trying to do. Maybe he was kicking back with a coffee and or long drink, trying to read a laminated Wall Street Journal, and we're intruding on his vacation and his birthday. So we'll just move on, and we'll wish him the very best, and we'll get a report, we hope, next week from Wyatt when he's back. Meanwhile, we love doing food controversies on this show. I saw this, and I thought it was a joke at first, but apparently no. Apparently this is actually a thing in Canada. And I'll just say, Canadians are our friends and our allies and our neighbors, but they are also a very different people in a lot of ways. Case in point, apparently ketchup popsicles, frozen ketchup popsicles are a thing up north. And I like popsicles. I like ketchup. The combination of these items is almost sickening to me. And I'm a hard, hard no. But I saw some Canucks getting very defensive about this on the Internet, Christine. You have bad taste in most things. Are you intrigued by the ketchup popsicle? I have to say, you know, I was intrigued by the Kraft mac and cheese ice cream. I've been intrigued by other things this is not something that I'm intrigued. This crosses the line. Yeah, and I, I do I do love the Canadians. They're so friendly. and um, But their taste in things could be worse than my taste in things. What Don't... if, hear me out, what if you had at the same time a pile of poutine and then accompanying that a ketchup popsicle? Because those tastes would at least... 
theoretically go together, the French fries covered in stuff and then ketchup, that might be the one way I'd be willing to at least try it to have an immersive Canadian experience, maybe at Epcot. I don't know if they have these things at Epcot. In the Canada Village, which I learned is a thing last week, that's the one way I would think about trying this, but I am overall an ice-cold no on this. Wait, so I've never had, what did you say, poutine? Poutine. But are you, Dan, just tell me what it is. It's basically Jersey's version of disco fries, right? Well, Canada's version. Oh, right, but we do it, we call it disco fries. I've never heard of disco fries in my life. What is that? It's You've never heard of disco fries and you're from New Jersey? I have never, ever heard that term. Um, So when you go to the diner and you order disco fries, it's got like gravy and melted cheese all over the fries. It's delicious. Yeah, that's poutine. That's poutine. So that's a (laughs) Canadian thing apparently. And if you're going to have some poutine, maybe on the side have a ketchup popsicle. Although I just prefer ketchup. Just leave it at that. It's not meant to be frozen or eaten like a dessert or at that temperature, that's disgusting. The other thing about ketchup, Christine, I have seen a disturbing number of people recently just sort of in a liberated way coming out of the closet almost to say that they've been ashamed and they've been bullied into pretending that they don't like it, but they're finally loud and proud. They love ketchup on pizza. And (gasps) I am a strong, strong no on that as well. What? That that can't be real. I mean, I'm a certified Jersey Italian girl. I know what's good pizza, and that is not it. And I, I don't actually, know. I, I bet you you slather your pineapple Domino's pizza with ketchup. So that sounds like it'd be right up your alley. Actually, you're so wrong on so many levels. But I have to say, I'm actually not a huge fan of ketchup myself. Oh, it's perfect for French fries. Mm. You want it on a burger? Can I ask you this? Can I ask you this? If you had, because they make this sometimes, if you had a bacon cheeseburger pizza, would you consider dipping it in ketchup? It's a hard no. Nope. No, 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 no. At all. No, to I, me, that's I don't where even, I would consider doing it. I'm not even sure I really love to dip my French fries in ketchup. I'm just. That's weird. Um, like if I was if I was at like a baseball game, if you and I, besties, go into the Yanks, and you say, "Hey, bestie, do you want a hot dog?" I would say, "Yeah, please get me a hot dog with mustard on it." I would. I never... prefer mustard to ketchup on a hot dog, but I also like both. I also like relish. I like onions. I like cheese. I like a lot of things on a hot dog. I like ketchup on a burger, and I especially love ketchup for fries. Ooh, some nice hot crispy salted fries with some cool ketchup just perfect what about ranch quick that is my i was just gonna say that that is and we were just in la and that's like a big thing in california is ranch on the side i love dipping things in ranch Mm. like especially a hot french fry that to me is delish it is a hit or miss phenomenon for me ketchup belongs on french fries not in popsicles and perhaps Any number of these combinations can be tried and indulged and enjoyed at Disney World, where they apparently have all sorts of cuisines, something I did not realize about that whole facility, where Wyatt is spending his vacation as an adult and his 22nd birthday today. Happy birthday to you, Wyatt. He's probably done with the ride, by the way. If he was just about to get on the ride, it's probably over over the course of the segment. I'd tell you to call him back and book him, but the show's over. 
So we'll get him on Monday, I guess. I'll be in Florida on assignment tomorrow. Much more on that to come. In the meantime, have a great night. Same time, same place here for the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.